So the issue of forgiveness must characterize us. It, it must be part of who we are as Christians. It must be part of our thinking. It must be part of our theology. It must be part of our actions. It needs to characterize us. We are most godly when we forgive. The question, and it's an important question, and we really should think carefully about it, is why does God want to forgive us? Why should God want to forgive us? Who in the world are we that God would forgive us? You're like, well, I mean, God created us. And after all, we're God's children, I mean. He made us, so surely he's going to love us. Uh, He made us perfect. He placed us into a perfect world. I'm not going to re-preach last Sunday's sermon, but just remember that this was a world in which moral perfection was a complete part of this creation. We were to be a part of the plan and purpose of God in which there would be no warfare, no jealousy, no anger, no envy, no disease, no threat. Nothing would be anything in any way harmful to us. And yet, like the poem, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, you know, for want of a nail, the horse wasn't shod. For want of the horse, the message wasn't delivered. For want of the message, the battle was lost. For want of the battle, the war was lost. And for want of the war, the nation was lost. And so a nation fell for want of a single nail. We tend to look at our own sinfulness, at our own willingness to do what is right in our eyes, and to think that, well, what could be so wrong with that? I mean, sure, I didn't tell the whole truth. Actually, I just lied. I, uh, okay, how bad can that be? I mean, come on. So I took a little something that wasn't mine. I mean, really? How bad could that all be? Um, the fact is that we have no idea. Or maybe we do. Maybe what we should do is look at the world we presently live in, look at all of the war and all the disasters, all the disease, all of the death, all of the conflict, all of the anger and bitterness and wrath and envy and jealousy and all of the stuff that goes on. How in the world did this all end up here? Well, because we defied God. This was not the world God designed when he made the place. He made the place to be perfect, perfect in beauty, perfect in harmony, perfect morally. If we had just listened to God, if we had just done what God said, we would live in perfect peace and harmony to this very day. No anger, no wrath, none of this. And yet, we couldn't do it. God gives Adam and Eve one simple thing. Whatever you do, don't eat the tree in the midst of the garden. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just don't eat that. That's all. You got every other tree in the place. Every other tree. And who knows how many trees there were. We have a lot of variety of trees to this day. Imagine the varieties that God made. They were perfect. The trees were perfect. The fruit was perfect. Everything was perfect. All you got to do is just leave one tree in the middle of the garden alone. That's it. Just leave that alone. 
And they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. The temptation came, and I mean, come on. You want to you be wise, don't you, after all? Um, and, and why shouldn't you be able to decide what's right or wrong for yourself? I mean, you're as good a judge of what is right and wrong as anybody else is, including, by the way, God. So just, just eat of the tree. It'll be okay. You won't really die. I mean, come on. God is just trying to up the stakes a little bit here, but it won't actually happen. You can eat of the tree. You've got, I mean, God gave you a mind and an intellect, didn't he? You're supposed to use it, aren't you? Aren't you supposed to use the moral ability that God gave you to make good choices? So make a good choice and eat of the tree. I mean, even as I say it, right, you're thinking, someone fell for that? Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And of course, having done it, like the nail, right? Initially, you can think that this is not that big a deal, and yet it just cascades. It just becomes this, like the dominoes, you know, they just, they just fall. And so here we are. And God, of course, curses. The curse of God falls on the earth instead of the blessing of God. And with the curse of God, the protection of God is taken away, and the entire creation just falls. Next thing you know, the animals are eating one another, and if you're not careful, they're eating you. And, and now all kinds of things that were supposed to be beneficial become um, hostile to us. And, and all of these various things begin to fall apart. And the question is, why would God intervene in this? I mean, really? Imagine that you spent a lifetime building, who knows what, some very intricate, very, I mean, it was tough. It was really hard to build whatever this thing was. You poured your life into it. You took years to do this. It was the epitome of your accomplishment. And someone just walks up with a sledgehammer and smashes the thing to pieces right in front of you. Uh, you know, if, it's, if you had the wherewithal, are you going to just go, huh, well, the only way I could ever put that thing back together is, you know, I'd have to sacrifice my firstborn son to put that thing back together. Would you sacrifice your firstborn son to put that thing back together? I certainly wouldn't. We wouldn't. Why would God? God is merciful. God is unexplicably kind to us. And it is essential when we talk about the issue of forgiveness that we recognize that God is not obligated to forgive us. There is no situation in which God must forgive us. We have chosen to defy the moral will of God, and we do it regularly. God, in his infinite grace and infinite mercy, has decided that he will, in fact, provide forgiveness for us. Now, 
Then arises the question, okay, well, who? Who is God going to forgive? And we might think about that and say, well, I, God ought to offer forgiveness to anybody. I mean, God ought to just offer forgiveness. I mean, he's God, after all. He does have the wherewithal to just forgive everybody, right? I mean, why can't God just forgive everybody? Are you sure God should just forgive everybody? I mean, stop for a second and really think about that. You want God to forgive murderers and people who commit deliberate genocide and serial killers and rapists? And you, you sure you want God to just give a blanket forgiveness to everyone? Oh, well, yeah, no, maybe not. I mean, now that you mention that, maybe, maybe the guards in the concentration camps in Germany in World War II, maybe there should not just be blanket forgiveness for everybody. I, now that you mention that. Okay, so who should God forgive? Well, you know, God can look on the heart, right? So since, I mean, God should forgive nice people, people who mean well. You know, people who, the nice folks. You know how it is. I mean, God can actually look at what we really meant. God can look at our hearts, and God can see what's really going on in our hearts. And so, you know, those like us, nice people who, who mean well, yeah, that's who God should forgive. He can offer forgiveness. Those mean, awful, murderous people. Yeah, God shouldn't forgive them. Okay. Are you sure you want to go with that standard? Are you sure you actually want God looking around in your heart to see what's really motivating you? Are you sure that your, that your heart is available for the evaluation of God and that that's going to come out okay? Are you sure? Because what God says, Jesus said in Matthew 15, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slander. Are you sure you want God looking around in your heart and seeing that anger that you have and all of those thoughts you've had about what you'd like to do to the people you don't like? Are you sure you want God actually evaluating us based on that? Um, You see, the problem that we have is that very pursuit, the very idea that somehow God should think like us, the very idea that we should be able to put forward the question, well, who should God forgive, and to think that we are somehow qualified to answer that question. Well, you know, I think God ought to. The very fact that we would put forward that statement shows the problem. We are not morally qualified to sit in judgment on God. We actually have no grounds upon which to stand in which we should in any way offer advice to God on what it is he should or shouldn't be doing. We just don't have the moral standing. And in fact, the entire sin that set this whole disaster in motion, the the one that we find ourselves in, the world that we're in, and and just... All of the sin and misery and heartache was all put forward by the very sin of Adam and Eve thinking that they were as qualified as God to decide what is good and evil, which is why they ate of the tree. The sin that we just so blatantly throw out there thinking, well, you know, I think that the way God ought to go about deciding things is. And our complete willingness to fill in that, that, that blank is the very sin that got us where we are. We should step back and say, you know what? God is sovereign. 
God is omniscient. God knows the exact effect of every decision anyone could ever make. I don't know that. God knows that. And so if, God, if anyone is going to set out what it is you should be doing and you shouldn't be doing, I think we should leave that to God. Let's let God decide what is right and what is wrong, not us. You ever have the assignment in high school to, to write that paper on exactly what a, a utopia would look like? You know, Write up what an utopian society would look like. I mean, just picture that we make you total sovereign for a day. You get to pass whatever law you want. We think that that would be a good thing. Oh, oh is that right? Well, let me see. I, uh, I would make it illegal to, and you know, you start writing down. Are you sure? I mean, do you actually have any sense of what the consequences of all of that might be? Well, we should just share everything. Sounds good. Sounds good. How do you think that actually works in practice, though? Because every time it's ever been tried, uh, you end up with those who work really hard for a while, and then you have those who don't work at all. And they end up getting as much as the people who work very hard. And if you let that go for very long, next thing you know, no one works very hard. And before you know it, there's nothing left to share. And that's how that all tends to go. I mean, it sounds good going in. But uh, we can't really see or foresee the consequences of all of our choices. But, but God can. So when God lays out for us what we should be doing, we should listen. You know what? We don't. So why does God forgive us? I mean, would you forgive us? Would we forgive people who deliberately set out to undermine what we're trying to get done and lie about us and hate us and speak evil about us, who go after our friends, who... Because this is what the world does to those who are believers, and this is what the world says about God. God chooses to forgive us. And the forgiveness of God, and I know you all know this, but it it is important to emphasize here. The only way that God can forgive us is to not simply go, well, those folks who are of good intentions, I'm going to just let their sin go by. First of all, there is no one with good intentions. We're all just selfish to the core. That's who we are. But second of all, there's only sinners. And God has chosen to send his own son to die for sinners. And the fact is, other than his inexplicable love for us, there is no answer as to why God is willing to forgive us. But he is. God could have just written this world off. Okay, you guys, I just threw over there somewhere. You guys just kind of do whatever you're going to do and when you're all done. And, you know, there is a place of eternal condemnation. And you know what? Everybody who actually makes it through that world until it finally just destroys itself, that's where they can all go. God could have done that. God was under no obligation to intervene in, on our behalf in any way. God chose to forgive sinners. God loves sinners. It should astound us. It should floor us every time we hear that. 
Instead, we kind of have a tendency to just like, eh, well, yeah, I mean, he's God after all. Of course he loves sinners. But the fact is, there is no of course he loves sinners. We should be astounded and amazed every time we hear that God is willing to forgive sinners. What is God thinking? And in fact, Paul writes to the church at Rome, to that group of people to whom the love of God is of no consequence whatsoever, and they simply ignore the love of God and the kindness of God and the goodness of God, and instead of falling on their knees in gratitude, they just continue to go out and sin the more. And Paul says to them in Romans 2, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Don't you know that the kindness of God should lead you to repentance? This is an insight into the character of God. God comes to us first and foremost as wicked sinners who are rebellious to him and who hate him and who have no desire for him to rule over us. God comes to us first and foremost with kindness and compassion and goodness. That's how God comes to us. That is the spirit with which God approaches the world. The rain falls on the just and on the unjust. And the tolerance and the patience and the kindness of God should lead us to repentance. We should hear about God's loving, gracious kindness to us, and we should go out, I I, I can't understand it. Why is God still nice to us? Of course, the world often responds, as Paul goes on to say, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, all you're doing is storing up for yourself wrath against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, which, by the way, is coming. I mean, it's not like, okay, so God is not raining down his wrath on you the second you step out of line. That is not an advocacy for you stepping out of line. That is God simply being kind to you. And the kindness of God should drive you to repentance. Not to say, oh, well, if I can walk this far away from God, maybe I can walk even further. I mean, there's no consequence for that. Maybe there's no consequence for whatever I do. So let's just go out and sin the more. No, the goodness of God should lead us to repentance. God is kind to sinners. This, by the way, is, is found throughout the scriptures. It's not just a New Testament concept. Job, in the book of Job 33, men will say, I have sinned and perverted what is right, and it's, it's not proper for me. Ah, but he has redeemed my soul from going to the pit, and my life shall see the light. Behold, God does all these things oft times with men to bring his soul back from the pit that he may be enlightened with the light of life. God takes those who have sinned and perverted what is right in God's sight, and still he brings them back into the light. He brings them back from the pit. Psalm 130. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, oh, Lord, who could stand? I mean, if you're going to start actually paying attention to the things we do wrong, we are in serious trouble here. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. This this is Old Testament, right? Isaiah 30. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are those who long for him. Long for God and he will bless you. New Testament, I mean, it's just the whole New Testament, right? The whole New Covenant is this story. But, you know, the prodigal son, right? He kind of lifts up his eyes and he says, wait a minute. 
What in the world am I doing over here feeding the pigs? I, I, I will go to my father. He will take care of me. I mean, this is the longing of the sinner's heart to God. And you know what? The, the, of course, the father and the prodigal son, I mean, he runs to greet his son. This is the heart of God. This is who God is. Peter says, God is not slow about his promises, as some people count slowness, but is long-suffering to us, not only that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you've read the churches in the first couple of chapters of Revelation, the church of Laodicea, I mean, this is a church that is just, I mean, God has departed from this church. He spews them out of his mouth, and yet he says, I stand at the door and knock, you know, and if anyone will simply open the door, I will come in. I will come in and be with them. God loves sinners. This is who God is. The gospel is the message to sinners. There's one life I'd like us to just take a moment and and just really, really dig into this. I love the Old Testament, by the way. I'm sure you've noticed that. If you come to Sunday school, junior church, uh, sorry. Sunday night. I'll get it out. We'll get through the list. Sunday night. If you come to Sunday night, we're we're going through the book of Genesis. And I love the book of Genesis. I I love Joshua and first and second Samuel. And these are just great, great stories. One of the great people that's back there in in first Samuel is David, the life of David. Now, when we think about David, this is a really interesting character. You'll remember, and we'll talk for just a moment here a little later about his whole deal there with Bathsheba and all of that. But what's interesting is in Psalm 51, as David has been confronted and he is now trying to make things right with God, he says, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done what is wicked in your sight. Which is a really interesting take on that. Because, wait a minute, David. Wait. Only against God have you sinned? Without even really thinking that hard about it, we can come up with a whole pile of people here that you've sinned against. I mean, you didn't commit adultery with Bathsheba, right? So you sinned against her husband, Uriah, by committing adultery. You stole his wife. You sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against the nation because you used your position as king to get Bathsheba to come over to your house. You ordered that to occur. You sinned against your entire army. You're the guy that's supposed to be watching out. I mean, when you send your soldiers off, one of the most heinous things that you can do is to send your soldiers off and then commit adultery with their wives who, you, who stayed behind. This is what David does. He's got more than one wife, by the way. He's got a variety of wives. And he sins against them by committing adultery with Bathsheba. And then, of course, to cover the sin, he murders Uriah. takes his very life. And just for the interesting thought, imagine when Uriah and David met in heaven. You know, that could have been slightly uncomfortable there. For Who knows how that all went. So how can this only be sin against God? 
How can David even write in Psalm 51, against thee and thee only have I sinned? How can he say that? Well, and of course, the answer to that is because ultimately, the purpose of our life, the purpose of your life, the purpose of everyone's life, is to bring honor and glory to God. That's why we're here. We are here so that we can worship God. That's what our life is for. Had sin never entered into this world, our lives would have consisted of us worshiping God. That's the purpose of our life. That, by the way, is still the purpose of our life. We have to now deal with sin in the midst of all of that, but the fact is that we are here to honor and glorify God. Remember when David, and this is why we're looking at the life of David, remember, do you remember what David said to Goliath? David has been anointed now. Samuel has already anointed him. This is when this event occurs. It's after he's been anointed. He goes to the battlefield to bring some stuff to his brothers. And while he's there, you know, they're, they're up on one mountainside, and the Philistines are up on another mountainside. And so you can all get a good look at one another. And then down into the valley, some will go. And, and one of the people that went down into the valley is Goliath. And he goes down there in the valley, and he stands there and says, send me, send me a man, you know, send a guy over here. That I may fight him. And if he beats me, then we'll be your servants. But if I beat him, you'll be our servants. And of course, everyone is like, oh, you aren't getting anywhere near that guy. Look at the size of him. But David, David is like, wait a minute. Who, who, who is this guy? He's not simply defying us. He's defying the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's defying the God of Israel. Who does he think he is? You can't do that. And so when David goes down to the Philistine, he says to him, you have come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of God, the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. That's whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord, and he will give you into our hands. This is what it looks like to have your life bring glory to God. This is who David is. This is why they made David king. This is one of the very incidences that contributed to David being the great warrior who he slayed, Saul slayed his thousands, David his ten thousands. It was, it was David's very victory here and framing this properly. Note, you remember the story that Nabal is shearing his sheep. And Nabal, uh, David sends ten of his young men Young guys, 12, 13, 14 years old, somewhere in there. Since 10 of them to go to Nabal and to see if, you know, I mean, we took care of your sheep the whole time they were out there. We were a wall to you by day and night. And, uh, hey, we've come at a good day. You've, you've slaughtered the sheep. I mean, there's, you've got lots of stuff here. You've got excess stuff. And, uh, you know, if you could give a little bit to us, we'd be, we'd be happy about that. And, of course, Nabal tells them to all get lost. So David's like, all right, that's it. We, I am going to take care of this guy and now David has already left. He's already run for his life, right? I mean, he's running around in the wilderness. But he's like, here we go. I am going to go slaughter this guy and kill every man among them. 
On the way, Abigail, his wife, Nabal's wife, she hears one of the servants come to her and like, hey, I don't, I don't think this is going to go well. Now listen to what she says to David. Just, just listen to her reasoning. First of all, please forgive the transgression of your maidservant. She's like, blame me. I, you know, they went to my husband and they should have come to me. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord an enduring house. She's talking to David now. The Lord will certainly make your house an enduring house because you are fighting the battles of the Lord and evil will not be found in you all your days. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living of the Lord your God. But the, Lord, but the, but the lies of your enemies, the Lord will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. We all know what she's talking about here, right? Everyone knows what she's talking about. Just like you slung that stone out there and killed Goliath, so God is going to sling your enemies out. And when the Lord does for my Lord, that is for you, David, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, this incident here will not be a grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and having avenged himself. When the Lord deals well with you, then remember your maidservant. This entire appeal to him is to say, look, you're a righteous guy. You're, the purpose for which you are going to be made king is so that you might bring honor and glory to God. And so you're not going to do this. You're not going to avenge yourself. You're not going to go in here and kill Nabal and all the, all the males. You're not going to do that. You wouldn't do that because you're going to trust God to take care of you. God is going to watch over you. Don't worry, God is going to take care of your enemies. And of course, what does David reply to Abigail? Oh, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discernment, and blessed be you. You've kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Just for the record, men, this is the kind of wife to get. You know, the woman who shows up and leads you to do the right thing with godly wisdom. This is a a great woman. And David, by the way, ends up, of course, marrying her. You know, because her husband ends up dying, and David, David marries her, which, well, he should, by the way. What does Uriah say? Uriah the Hittite, back to, you know, which is after this event, by the way, by multiple years. This is how Uriah speaks to David. When David calls him back from the battlefield, having committed adultery with his wife, and hoping to somehow talk Uriah into getting over there, you know, get with your wife so that, you know, we can all just make like none of this ever happened here. Don't get caught. And here's what Uriah says to David. Well, the ark and Israel and Judah, they're all staying in temporary shelters. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord, they're camping in an open field. Shall I go to my own house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Can you imagine how David must have actually... No wonder in Psalm 51, you know, my my bones are burning. Yeah, they should have been. This guy is a righteous guy, and look what you've done. David, of course, is then confronted by Nathaniel the prophet, you know, and he gives a little story there about the lambs, and one guy had lots of lambs, one guy had one lamb, and when a visitor came, he killed the guy's one lamb, and David's like, whoa, that guy should be taken out and killed. It's like, it's you, David. You're that guy. And here's what I want you to catch. This is what Nathan says to him. David says, I've sinned. And Nathan says, well, 
Okay, the Lord has taken away your sins. You won't die. However, by this deed, you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. So the child, which was going to be born to you too, will die. Why? Because the purpose of your life, David, is to bring honor and glory to God. Committing adultery and impregnating your neighbor's wife is not bringing any glory to God. In fact, this is giving the enemies of God an occasion to disparage the very name of God. So there are going to be consequences to your sin. God forgives you. You won't be killed. But there are going to be consequences to the things you've done wrong. Why? Because your life is here to glorify God. And this act is not bringing glory to God. Ah, but that's not the end of the story. This is what's really essential to really get the heart of God. Stop and think about this. How many wives does David have? Anybody, anybody want to take a shot at how many wives David has? That we, that's recorded, at least. Seven. It's at least seven wives. And if you want to look, you can see it in 1 Samuel um, First Samuel, uh, sorry, Second Samuel 3. In 1 Samuel, he gets, he gets Saul's daughter. That's his first wife, uh, Michal. He gets her for a wife. But then he ends up with Ahinoam, uh, and then he ends up with Abigail, and then he ends up with Makkah, and then he ends up with Haggith, and Abital, and Eglah. That's seven. He's got seven wives. Now, here's the question. David is in the direct line of the Messiah, right? David is going to be the great, 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 whatever, grandfather of the Messiah. He's got seven wives to pick from. So which wife is the wife by which the Messianic descendants is, is followed by? Is it, is it uh, Michal, who is Saul's daughter? I mean, that would have been a, you know, that would have brought unity to the kingdom, and, you know, a lot of good things could have flown from that. No. Nope. Ahinoam, who we don't really know anything about her. Nope. Abigail? I mean, come on. If you've got to pick, Abigail, this woman who talked him out of committing a heinous act and shedding innocent blood, surely this would have been the, God, the one God would have chosen. I mean, she is a godly woman. Nope, not so much. In fact, you can just go down to the list, and we all know which one, right? Which wife? Um, you know, it was the wife who decided when her husband was gone, who decided when all the men of Israel were all gone to war, to get up on her rooftop in the moonlight and decide to bathe herself. <clears throat> right, ladies. I mean, all you ladies, right? You all just, you know, when you're going to, Y'all just get out there on the front lawn in the moonlight and decide to take a bath, right? Nobody does this. I mean, Bathsheba is not innocent in this. And yet, of all the wives of David, Solomon is her son. God forgives. God is a forgiving God. God is a gracious God. If you're sitting here and you're thinking, I've ruined my life so bad, I can't possibly get it back. I can't. You know, it's, it's not possible that God could ever make anything out of my life. I mean, the decisions I've made, the things I've done, I, there's no way God could ever use my life. Oh, you think not, huh? You don't know God. You just don't understand. If you will come to God with repentance, if you will come to God and you will ask him to forgive you and to, and to 
use your life? Oh, God will use your life. You'll be thrilled to. God blesses sinners. Now that's, I want to be clear, that's not an excuse to sin. But the fact is, if we will come to God with repentance, whatever sin we've committed, God wants to forgive. He will forgive. And he will take our lives and use them to his honor and glory. Now, even David, if you, if you go out and do things that make God look bad, well, there will be consequences to that. But David repented. And God took Bathsheba of all the wives. This is a great insight into the character of God. He is willing to take sinners, real sinners, and use them. Praise God. Because if we'll just look in our hearts, that's every single one of us. Praise God, he's willing to use us. And so, forgiveness. God forgives us. And we're not done on the topic of forgiveness, by the way. Next week, we'll talk about forgiving each other. Which, hopefully, this sermon will lead right into nicely, right? I mean, the fact that God is willing to forgive whatever sin people have committed. So should we. And if that weren't worth a whole sermon, I'd just end it right there. But it is worth a whole sermon all its own, so please come back next week. Let's, let's pray. Oh, our dear Heavenly Father, you are you're an amazing God. How is it that you love us? How is it that you care for us? How, how is it that you are willing to look at us, sinners, real sinners, people who are filled with selfishness and pride and envy and anger and rebellion, who complain, who grumble, who, who plot evil, who our hearts are dark, Lord, and yet, yet, that is exactly what you sent Jesus to die for. That is exactly the kind of person for whom you were willing to give your own son's life. Who are we to have your son given on our behalf? Thank you, Lord, for that. May we come to you with humble hearts, seeking that forgiveness. Lord, may that be a constant refrain of our lips to come to you and thank you for your amazing grace that you have displayed to us. Use our lives, Lord. Use them to serve you. May we carry forth this message of forgiveness. May we be a people who are an amazing, forgiving, gracious people. May you use our lives to show the world who you are. We ask through the blood of your Son given on our behalf. Amen.